Welcome to Epiphany Fellowships Podcast. My name is Dr. Eric Mason, lead pastor and founder of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. Our desire is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in every week to check out new messages. God bless you and take care. To know him. To know him as he is. In all of his beauty, in all of his splendor, in all of his goodness. To know him. That's why we're here. It's that we might know him. That we might know him in his truth and know him more abundantly and in him find life. So that we might know how to live so that we can please him. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait till that great day when my eyes will behold for the first time Jesus who is the Christ before me. And I'll get to touch him with my hands. And I'll get to know him. We'll get to know him. The greatest way that we know him today is through surrender. Are you willing to surrender your life so that you can know him? So that you can know him more. Every day you should be waking up. How can I get to know you more, Jesus? What do you want me to give up today so that I can know you more? What do I have to put aside? What hindrance? And what weight do I need to lay aside so that I can know you more, so that I can run this race unhindered before you? I surrender. Father, we, we're thankful that we can come as surrendered people, living lives with nothing in the way of us getting to know you. Lord, we don't want any of our sin in the way from getting to know you. Any of our doubt in the way from getting to know you. No pride or, or arrogance, no bondage to sin. There's nothing, God, that should be in the way from us getting to know you. And we thank you, Lord, for providing access, full, immediate access to know you through Jesus because you tore the veil and you command us to come before your throne boldly to receive mercy and grace. Father, we come with arms open wide, with hearts ready to surrender that we might know you and that we might know how to live so that we can please you. Father, that's the cry of our hearts every day. Until that day where you will take us home to be with you. And we will get to know you more and more about you for the rest of eternity. We look forward to that. That's the great day that our hearts long for. Father, we pray in Jesus' 
mighty name. All of God's people that agree with that say amen and amen. If you could with me stand and open your Bibles to Titus, Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, we're going to read from verses 1 through 9, Titus right after 2 Timothy, it's a small book so don't flip too fast, Titus chapter 1 verses 1 beginning, we're beginning at verse 1 through verse 9, if you're there say amen, Amen. if you're not there say hold on, amen, let's keep moving. I'll start us and then you join me and then we'll keep reading till the end of verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Keep reading. Amen. The title for our message this afternoon is The Crossroad of Faith and Practice. The Crossroad of Faith and Practice. Father, we come before your word and we open it with humility, ready and expecting to see your wonder, the wonder of who your son Jesus Christ is through it. Would you open our eyes and our minds to receive your word this day? In Jesus Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Before we jump in, I need your help uh, really quickly. We're going to play a little game, um, and I need a volunteer. Yes, ma'am. Come on. Thank you for popping your hand up. Come on. Come on up. Tell us your name. My name is Kaya Jones. Kaya Jones. Thank you, Kaya. We appreciate it. Um, We're going to play a little game. Uh, I'm going to have you go with Kristen. He's going to have you listen to a song real quick, and then we'll bring you back in. All right? Brother Reg, you got to come up with good illustrations. See? You can't just, you got to vary it up. All right, so listen, this is what we're going to do. All right? I don't know if you guys have heard of this game called Find the Leader. You're, normally you're sitting in a circle so you can see everybody. 
there's somebody that's going to be doing something. Let's just say they're clapping, and everybody sees that person clapping, and so they have to clap as well, right? If they change, let's say they start patting their head, everybody has to pat their head, and, and she's going to have to come in here and try to figure out who the leader is. Y'all got that? Y'all sure everybody know the rules, right? Now, do me a favor, right? Normally, we're in a circle so we can see everybody. So once I pick the leader, don't just be staring at that person, <laughs> right? And give it away, right? So if you're in the direct line of sight of that person, like, watch them, but don't do it, you know, do it inconspicuously, right? <laughs> if you can't see that person, then look at somebody completely different and wait till they start doing what the leader does, right? Y'all got it? Okay, um, I need a, I, I see you pointing at yourself, okay. All right, Miss Whitney, right? Um, can you stand up for us, Whitney? All right, Whitney's gonna be our leader, okay? Um, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, so, I'm gonna have you just start clapping. When she, when she comes in, everybody's just gonna be clapping. And then for those that y'all can see, just follow Whitney and da da da. Make sure she's not looking at you when you change it up, Whitney. Come on now, all right? I, you're, all right, can y'all can start clapping now? Just clap, clap. <laughs> So Kai, there is, there's one person in the audience who is doing something that everybody else, everybody else is following them. I'm going to give you three guesses to try to figure out who that person is, all right? So you have three guesses to try to figure out who that person is. Cool. No. That's one. We got two more. Two more. No. <laughs> it's actually a person in here. Yes. It's actually a person in here, yes. You got two more. You got two more guesses. Who's him? Can you describe him? Yep, he's patting his head. <laughs> the security shirt on, okay. Uh, no, that's not it. You have one more guess. Kadia, because that's my friend. Who? Kadia. Kadia? Kadia, is it you? It's not, so. Thank you for playing, Kai. Hold on, don't go anywhere. Okay, all right, all right. What, what was difficult about that? Uh, leader, can you raise your hand? Thank you, all right. <laughs> I knew it was over here. Why you got your hand right? Come on. Uh, uh, what, was, what was difficult about that? Everybody was doing the same thing. Everybody was doing the same thing, which made it hard to what? Figure out who was doing it first. Thank you, Kai. Everybody give it up for Kai. Appreciate it. One of the things that Paul is trying to get at in this passage is how difficult it often can be to identify what qualities you should be looking for in a leader. 
What do you do when you're looking around in the world and everybody is doing the same thing? How do you know that just because it looks like something that they're actually the one you should be following? How do you distinguish between a poor leader and someone who just preaches really good? How do you distinguish between a, a poor leader and someone who's just very charismatic and draws a lot of people to themselves? How do you distinguish? Even in the church, how do you know what you're looking for? It's easy to go to church after church and be dissatisfied with the leadership, but find yourself consistently following poor leaders if you don't know what you're looking for. It's one of the things Paul is trying to get at here in the book of Titus, which leads me to my first point uh, and my only point for us this afternoon. If you want to be a healthy Christian, you must know how to identify healthy leaders. If you want to be a healthy Christian, you must know how to identify healthy leaders. Look with me at verse 1. Paul begins this book to Titus, his, uh, what he, who he calls his true son in the faith. Uh, in verse 4, he says that Paul, I'm a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am a, a doulos, a slave of God and a servant of Jesus Christ or an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's interesting here that Paul uses two different designations to define who he is and what he is in Christ. It's interesting because Paul has a very clear grasp that by this point in his life, he's later on in life, his eyes are probably dimming a little bit, but, but even though he's later in life, Paul knows who he is in God. He knows who he is because at first, the first thing that he calls himself is a servant of God, a slave, a doulos. He says, I'm not too big in my britches, even though I've planted so many churches, even though I've brought people from infancy to maturity in the faith, even though I have shepherded leaders and all of these great things, I'm not too big on myself to not call myself a slave of Christ. But he says, I'm also not too low to not understand that God has appointed me as an apostle, which means my role comes with both obligation and authority. As a servant, I'm obligated to bring this gospel message to you because I'm burdened by Christ to share it with the entire world. And yet at the same time, I'm an apostle, so I know I have the authority given to me by God to command you to obey what I'm telling you. He says, I, 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 my role is one of both obligation and authority. And Paul has two primary concerns that he wants to make sure he takes care of as he writes this letter to these Christians at Crete. And he, he says, he goes on, he says, he says I, my, the message uh, or, or why I'm here is for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Paul's two main concerns were the faith of God's elect, meaning he was concerned about their salvation. Not just the salvation of those who had not yet come to know Christ, which is why he was preaching, but also their salvation that they might remain saved, that they might be shored up in their faith. They might be established in their firm footedness in their walk with God. He also was concerned about the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, how they walk out what they say they believe. Notice the progression here that Paul goes through. He says, I was sent to proclaim faith to God's elect, 
to teach them to know the truth so that they can live godly lives. I proclaim the faith so that they might know the truth to live godly lives. Meaning that knowledge of the truth always produces godliness. But truth must be rooted in what God says truth is, not your truth. See, the thing about our truth is that usually it changes depending on how we feel. You can't trust somebody that tells you to live in your truth because they don't love you. They're not willing to tell you that you're wrong and that your truth is highly subjective and centered around how you feel. It's centered around your selfishness, centered around what makes you feel good, and it's not there to help you grow. You can't trust your truth because your truth is not true. You have to get your truth from the standard of truth, which is God and his word. So he says, in order for you to receive the faith, it must be rooted in truthfulness. Paul's going to get to why this the nature of truthfulness or the message that he's proclaiming being rooted in God's truthfulness, why that's so important later on when he begins to describe what the culture was like in Crete, not very much unlike our culture. But this truth that roots our faith and teaches us how to live in godly ways is rooted in the person work of Jesus Christ, that you're a sinner separated from God who must believe on Christ and his atoning work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and you must put your faith in him by grace to be saved, knowing that that means and requires that your mind now has to be transformed and renewed to look like his. Meaning, simply put, that anything that you can know about everything has to start with what does God think about it. That's what Solomon was writing in Proverbs chapter 1. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It means that I take God so seriously that I need to know what God thinks about this before I can decide what I think about this. What does God think about sex? That's how I need to think about it. What does God think about friendship? That's how I need to think about it. What does God think about how I should handle my money? That's what God, or, or how does God think about it? Whatever you can know about any topic or any subject that has been created in this world, you need to first begin with, where does God stand? And how do I align myself with him? So that Paul begins to tell us that this, this message that he has received needs to be reaffirmed in Crete with the believers. Paul wanted to strengthen them and to let them know that this gospel message should be reflected in their behavior. That there is an inseparable link between faith and practice. Belief and behavior. You cannot have one without the other. See, Crete was a culture where false teachers were running wild, as we'll see later in the text. But he's writing this letter to address all of these so-called teachers of truth who are really spitting falsehoods and leading the people astray. And Paul has to come in and write this letter to Titus to say, Titus, I need you to put some things in order, which we'll learn about in verse 5. But he says there's the primary problem happening in Crete right now is that God's people can't discern what is true and what is false. It's funny, I, I worked at a bank for almost six years. I'm not going to tell you all which one because it's got a bad reputation right now. <laughs> but I, I worked at a bank for 
uh, almost six years, and I started off as a teller. And one of the first things that you have to do, you cannot work at a bank. They will fire you in a quick second if you can't tell the difference between real money and fake money. And you know that everybody doesn't know the difference because I would receive fake money all the time from well-meaning people that had no clue that they were carrying fake money that they got from somewhere else. See, real money has watermarks in it. When you hold it up to the light, if you're holding a 20, there'll be a $20 bill that you can't see if you're not holding it up to the light. There's also other little water features in there as a security measure that need to be in there in order to certify it as a real $20 bill. But just in case somebody was smart enough to design a $20 bill that by appearances looked real, there was still one way to tell whether or not it was real or fake. And it's always by the touch. You can always tell if you have fake money by how it feels. See, that's why they didn't want you to use the counting machines too often because the counting machines won't detect it. But you've actually got to put your hands on it. And even though you might be counting money quickly and running through thousands and thousands of dollars, if you've been trained well enough to spot what's real, then the minute your fingers touch that fake, it's, it's going to send an alert off. Hold up. What was that? Let me go back and check that out. Believers in Jesus Christ, Paul wants us to know today that you should be able to spot the truth so well because the word has been hidden in your heart that you spent so much time investing in developing your understanding of what God's word has to say that there is no falsehood that will lead you astray. See, the problem with falsehood, though, is that most of us do not follow falsehood because of doctrine. We follow falsehood because false teachers already tell us and give us the room to enjoy the ungodliness we want to do. See, falsehood is not a doctrine issue, primarily. It's a heart issue. Because false teachers give us room to continue in the blatant sin that we enjoy doing without anyone telling us that we have to change. See, falsehood gives us room to compromise. False teachers can't rest in the truth because they don't have truth. And what they are teaching never leads to godliness. See, that's how you can spot a false teacher and the truth. Because truth always leads you to godliness. It's Paul saying, Timothy, young Timothy, there are some things that are going on amongst God's people that I need you to put in order. He goes down to verse 5. He said, that's the reason I left you in Crete. He said, I want you to to set some things right, to put in order some things that have been left undone as I directed you. And the first thing that I want you to do is appoint elders in every town. Now, now the, 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 the beautiful thing about Crete was uh, we, we know in, in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, that there were, there were Cretans who were present at the day of Pentecost. Right? The day of Pentecost was uh, when the apostles had gone to, to Jerusalem and they began uh, to speak in tongues and everybody thought they were drunk because they were, but, but they couldn't be drunk because everybody was hearing them in their own language. And the Bible says that there were people there from the island of Crete that were hearing the gospel message proclaimed in their own language. And so what eventually happened was they took that gospel message back and began to make communities of people there. But what happens in a society that breeds falsehoods and untruths 
And God's people are living in those societies and there's no leadership. That's what happened. Either this church was very young at the time or it was highly disorganized. Where instead of being a healthy church that impacts the culture, because of their disorganization and lack of leadership, they were an unhealthy church that was impacted by it. Now we know a little bit about this culture because if someone was to call you a Cretan, it would be essentially the same thing as them calling you a liar. That's how much the culture had impacted how the Cretans were viewed. These were people that Paul says later in verse 12 that they, their own prophet describes them as liars, evil beasts, and lazy people. I know we don't know a society like that today. Where most of the leaders are speaking half-truths. Dishonesty where they don't work hard, but they want you to work hard for them. And what happens when God's people live in the society where the leaders like that are regularly propped up and there's no one to tell you what's different, what's right, how to follow the truth? And that's what Paul is trying to get at. He says, he says I want you to put some things in order. We got to get this church together. We need to, to set some things up that are supposed to be uh, uh, representative of God's people. And he said, appoint some elders in every town to lead God's people and lead his church. And here are some qualifications that you should be looking for in your leaders. Verse six, he says, you need to make sure that an elder must be blameless. So you, an elder must be blameless. That word means above reproach. It means that there should be no one that can bring a credible charge against you in your character. That means that you don't have any skeletons in your closet. Nobody's going to bring up any old Twitter posts that you had in 2012. Nobody's going to bring up some Facebook uh, 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 arguments that you had with people or some Instagram photos that you had from back in the day. Oh, okay, it's just me in here? All right, y'all can act like... He says, there, there should be absolutely nothing in your life that somebody can bring up and hold against you that would bring disrepute against God's people or himself. Now, the beautiful thing about this is Paul knows that what he's talking about here is someone who has an untarnished reputation, both in the church and outside of the church. Let me make that clear, because in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says that an elder must have a good reputation inside the church and out. Now, why does Paul tell us that and make sure he tells us that? Because he knows some of us know how to talk that Christian lingo and dress on Sunday. But as soon as we step out of here and our church clothes come off, we can easily compromise cussing our coworkers out because they made us mad on Monday. Or regularly sleeping with a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Regularly watching porn and not being upset about it. All of the secret sins that we allowed ourselves to do. But Sunday, we real godly, though. We know all the words to the worship song. We even serving every couple of Sundays. Paul says, no, the, 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 the men I'm looking for to lead God's people, they need to have a good reputation in the church and in them streets. What do people say about him when they see him? Is he crooked? Is he trustworthy? Is he harsh? 
Is he honest when nobody's looking? Paul's concern, though, is not a perfect candidate, but a godly candidate. See, that, that, that word blameless, it has a high standard where it's going to hold these men to moral excellency, and yet it still understands that these men are not perfect, but they're godly. They're not perfect, but they're godly. Now, this blameless man, he says, needs to have some qualifications in his blamelessness. It says that this blameless man has to be the husband of one wife. That means he needs to be a, a one-woman man. That means that he can't have no Lamechian mind. Now, now, some of y'all don't know what I'm talking about, about a, a Lamechian mind, but Lamech was the very first man in the Bible who took two wives for himself. See, one of the issues that we as men have is we want all the women for ourselves. That's why you're watching porn all the time. That's why you keep jumping from relationship to relationship to relationship, dating but never marrying. That's why you're always flirting with women at work when your wife's not there. That's why you're always led into adultery is because you can't be self-controlled enough to love your wife. You know, loving, loving one woman for your whole life is hard work. It's hard work because if you don't bring your A game, she gonna get bored real quick. Says you need to be a one woman man. Now some might take that and just think, oh, he's talking about physically, oh, as long as I'm physically uh, pure to her. Listen, what are you doing in your mind on a regular basis? Does, does your mind belong to her? Does she have all of your emotions? Or are you sharing things with other women that are reserved for your wife? Does she, does she have spiritually all of you? Or are you so spiritually unfit that you can't even give her anything? He said a one woman man. He said the type of men that I'm looking for are blameless, which means nobody can bring anything about their marriage to the table. Not only that, but he says, he says what about your children? He says, but what, 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 what about your children? He said, children that are not accused of wildness or rebellion. He says, when I take a look at your family life, what does it look like? Paul says to Timothy, he says, he says how can a man whose family is chaotic take care of the family of God? How can I trust a man with my people when I can't trust him with his family? He says that, that, means, that means that this, this man and his godliness and his character and his attentiveness and his engagement with his children has been so incredible that they begin to ooze off of his character. That they begin to reflect his very character. That doesn't mean that he saves them because that's reserved for God, but that they respect his authority so much so that they would not, uh, nobody would see them or have any charge to bring against them that would look bad upon him. So what does your home life look like? I, I want men who can take care of their home. 
Man that can take care of their home can take care of the family of God. They were trusted with a little, now I can entrust them with a lot. Man, what are you doing in the home? Then look, look, look with me at verse 7. He says, now as an overseer, that word is interchangeable with elder pastor, as an overseer of God's household, uh, uh, some translations uh, add that phrase that he is a steward of God. This overseer as a steward of God's household must be blameless. There goes that word again. Paul, in describing the, uh, the characteristics of a man that are most important, he's, he says multiple times that if a man is going to lead God's people, he must be blameless. He's got to have a clean reputation. But he says, here, here are some distinguishing factors to let you know whether or not he's not blameless. Look at this. He says he can't be arrogant, stubborn, or, or strong-willed, self-willed. It means that, that, that you're, you're unable. He's always right about everything. He never repents because he's never wrong. And his way is always the right way. He can't be arrogant. He can't be quick-tempered or hot-tempered. That does not merely point to losing one's temper, but being inclined regularly to anger. He's just always angry. You've got to walk on eggshells around him. You've got to try to work your way back into his favor. You can't be or, or not an excessive drinker. Not that he can't have a little sip every now and again. But he said, not an excessive drinker. Maybe he has a little sip and leaves it alone. But you're not finding this man regularly so out of order in his mind. Mastered by alcohol. Mastered by other narcotics. Mastered by, by other hallucinogens that would cause you to not be sober-minded. He said, this guy is not a bully. He doesn't use God's word to beat you into submission. He doesn't try to manipulate situations to get what he wants when he wants it. He's not a bully. He's not greedy for money or I like how some translations say pursues dishonest gain. He says stay away from men who are lovers of money, always on a grind, always try and get this paper. Because their life is money and they've already decided who their master is. He said, he said, but, he said, here are some characteristics that should be found in blameless men who are above reproach. He said, these, these type of men are hospitable. They are welcoming. Not to just people they know, but also to strangers. They welcome people in and make them feel comfortable and at home. He says, but these men, they love what it is good. They know what is good and they love what is good, even when it's hard. It's easy to love good when it's easy. Do you love good when it's hard? Do you love good if you're the only one loving good and everybody else doesn't? If you're standing on an island by yourself, are you still going to love good? 
says this type of man is sensible. He, he, he thinks well. He's a, he's a planner. He makes good decisions. He has a track record of being trustworthy. Is this man righteous? He does what is right. And is he holy? He has set himself aside to be used by God. And most importantly, is he self-controlled? Does he have his passions on a leash? And I'm not just talking about sexual passions because sometimes we jump straight there. Are you self-controlled in your eating habits? It's easy to talk about self-control when it relates to sexual issues, but what about self-control in all areas of your life? See, self-control. Now, now, now notice, notice that most of these qualifications have to do with character and not skill. Listen. You can teach a man how to preach. You can teach a man how to study the Bible well. You can teach a man how to lead people, but you can't teach a man how to be godly if he doesn't have the character to be godly. See, you, you, can, you can stand up here and preach all day, but if I step down here, and my life doesn't match what I've preached. See, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, watch your life and your doctrine that you might save yourself and your hearers. What is he telling him? He said that there is an inseparable link between what you say out your mouth and what you do with your feet. Then as a leader and as a man, you be able to better be able to open the word, but more importantly, you better be able to walk that thing out. He said, he said the, the, man, the man of God has to have credibility based on his life, not just what he says. See, see, we have so many churches that are struggling today because there are men in the pulpits who can preach the roof off. But they wouldn't stand the test of time when it comes to character. It's interesting, though, as we look at these characteristics, that these characteristics are not just for pastors and elders and leaders. So I, I know what some of you are saying. You're saying, man, if I could only get there, if I could only be more self-controlled, if I don't only be more hospitable, if I could only be more godly, if I only didn't drink so much, if I only wasn't so violent or inclined to anger. Listen, listen, there are other places in the text. We could go to Galatians chapter 5. We can go to Colossians chapter 3. We can go to Ephesians chapter 4 all over the text where these virtue lists, the same virtues that I just read that are qualify a man to lead God's people are the same one that are expected of you, men and women, as God's followers. When Peter writes in 1 Peter that God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness, and if you walk in those things, you will not be left unfruitful, he wasn't writing to pastors. He was writing to the household of faith. 
Because the wonderful thing, or some of the times, what, what happens is we read verses like this about what the standard should be for pastors, and we hold them to that standard, and we don't hold ourselves there. We expect a, a greater form of godliness from leaders than we expect from ourselves. And then what happens oftentimes is we don't feel like we can actually hold pastors to that standard because we know that we aren't meeting that standard either. How are you going to hold a man to a standard of self-control when you're out running the streets yourself? How are you going to tell a leader to go home and love his wife and you ain't been home in two days because you're always working or you always out with the boys? Character. Character. But this character, you see, this, this character describes all of us. All of us. All of us. But notice what he says. Look, look with me at verse, verse 9. He says, he says, now these men, these blameless men, they need to be able to hold to the faithful message as taught. Meaning that they actually believe and agree with God's word. That, that, that they, are, they have submitted their lives to the doctrines that they have been taught in God's word. That there is agreeableness with God's word and a, and a willingness to faithfully defend it. Look what he says. He says they got to hold to the faithful message so that they will be able both to encourage with sound teaching or healthy teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Now, even though character is expected... And character is uh, 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 necessary. The man of God, if he's going to lead God's people, needs to be able to teach God's word. You need to be able, as you lead God's people, to give sound instruction or healthy doctrine. That's what sound teaching means. It means healthy. It means that it has everything that it's supposed to have. You know, when you're not healthy, that means, that means that there are aspects of you that are not functioning the way that they should be. Here, the man of God should be teaching God's word in a way that it functions properly as it's supposed to be. That all of his doctrines are in line and it produces in believers the fruit that are supposed to show in their lives. Can you teach sound doctrine? Not only that, but it also says that you have to be able to refute those who contradict it. Do you know God's word well enough where you can defend the faith if somebody contradicts what it says? Do you know enough about the person and work and atonement of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection? Do you know enough about what happens to us when we die? Do you know enough about the origins of creation? Do you know enough to be able to refute those who might contradict the great grace of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you know enough? I love what uh, uh, Dr. Crawford Loritz says in relation to this vital link between sound doctrine and godly living and how they go together. Because sound doctrine and godly living go together. He says, he says this, he says, teaching is necessary, but not at the expense of character. We must avoid preferring competence over character. He goes on to say, he says, he says, when we as leaders downplay the prominence of our walk and relationship with God and underemphasize godly character, the word of God and prayer in relation to his call for our lives, 
We shouldn't be surprised when we get leaders whose resumes are crammed with accomplishments, but who have impoverished souls. What Paul is trying to get Titus to realize is that we don't just plant churches for the sake of planting churches. But every church has the expectation of being a healthy church, vibrant, serving, growing. And you will not grow as a healthy church unless you have healthy leaders. And you can't have healthy leaders unless you know what a leader should look like. See, ultimately what he's trying to get Titus to realize is that leaders should reflect the blamelessness of Jesus Christ. That's why Peter writes that he was blameless and there was no sin found in him or deceit found in his mouth. Matter of fact, when Jesus stood before Pilate, he was so blameless that Pilate had to wash his hands and said, I find no sin in this man. And yet they crucified him anyway. See, healthy leaders, if you're going to be crucified, be crucified because they couldn't find anything wrong with your character. Be crucified because you faithfully stood your ground, holding to the faithful word as taught. Be crucified because while the rest of the world went left, you stood right. Be crucified because even though it might be isolated, even though you might be afraid, even though you might be deterred in some ways, don't, don't wander, don't fray, but stand firm on the sure-footedness of God's word. He says, he says, Lee, he says we need people who are blameless. We need leaders who are blameless. What would it look like today if God's people was a community of blameless people? Above reproach. If, the, if there's one thing the world has on the church, like legitimately has on the church, it's that they can bring a charge against us. They can bring a charge against us in our character. So men and women today, we, we've got a decision to make. We can no longer straddle the fence. Paul here is telling Timothy to make sure that the believers in Crete pick a side. Are you going to walk in godliness? Or are you going to chase after your sinful desires? The choice is yours. But the crossroad of practice and belief Behavior and sound doctrine is godliness. So the question for us is, are we going to walk in it? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful and thankful for your word. Thankful and grateful that you give us clarity on what we are supposed to be like as your people. That you give us clarity on what you expect from us as your people. That you give us clarity on the distinction between what is false and what is true. Help us, oh God, to walk in godliness. To be a people who are known for being above reproach. And it doesn't mean that we don't have pasts that we're working through. It doesn't even mean that we don't have presents that we need to put down. But God, that we are willing to say today, right now, today, no matter what happened yesterday or last week or 10 years ago, that we're willing to say right now, today, I'm going to follow Jesus. Lord, would you set it in our hearts? 
that we might know you and that we might live for you each and every day of our lives. This we pray in the name of Jesus, the only name that matters, our King and our Savior. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to today's message. I hope that it was a blessing to you and it was aiding in your life to help you to show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. If this message has been a blessing to you, we want you to consider partnering with us in ministry so that we can maximize what God has called us to do locally, nationally, and internationally. You can go to epiphanyfellowship.org, go under give and consider donating. Thank you. Take care. See you next week.